Darrell Sparks is the pastor there, Dearborn Baptist Church, and uh, I've asked him to come and bring our next message. Brother Sparks, good to have you. It's first time to be able to make our conference. We're delighted to have you. Thank you, brother. We are witnessing with mind-boggling shock and with breathtaking speed, not just cultural change, not just cultural chaos, not just cultural confusion, but cultural collapse. The descent into depravity described in Romans 1 is happening before our eyes. One of those cultural changes really is the attitudes and the feelings that society has toward us, toward Christians, toward preachers and churches, toward believers. We used to be the home team. We're not the home team anymore. The predominant worldview in our world is not a biblical worldview. On our streets, in our neighborhoods, at our stores, and in our schools, it is a secular worldview. It is an evolutionary worldview. It is an atheistic worldview. We used to be the home team. Now, we are the punchlines for comedians. Now, we are maligned by the media. An essay by Mike Mayes says that Christians, that media reports about Christians are consistently negative. <laughs> no surprise there. We are maligned by the mainstream media. We are really no more than a voting block to the, to the politicians. We are being blatantly subverted by the educational system. And we are being constantly allured by the marketing and entertainment sectors. Virtually all, all five of the institutions that, that shape culture, that's government, education, media, business, and entertainment, well... They are consistently negative toward the Christian faith. For Christians today, all our games are away games. We're not the home team anymore. We don't have the support of the home crowd, but find ourselves in an ever-increasing hostile society. So here's the question. How should we respond in this post-Christian culture? What does it take for us to minister in a time like ours? I read an article that appeared in the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission back in April of 2018. And it pointed out a lot of the long, wrong ways for us to respond, but also concluded that actually this is a great time to be a Christian. And here's the closing line of that article. All we need is Christian 
courage. And that's what I want to talk about today. Courage. Christian courage in these post-Christian, anti-Christian times. Knowing the time should tell us that now is the time for courage. The kind of courage I'm talking about is not the courage of a soldier who charges fearlessly onto a battlefield. I'm talking about Christian courage, about moral courage, about the courage of of conviction, what it takes to withstand the pressures of our time. Now, this kind of courage is hard to define, hard to explain, but easier to illustrate. And in fact, there's a wonderful example of courage in our Bibles. To give you an example of courage, I want to take you into God's Word. I want to reacquaint you with a Bible story about a prophet. I want to briefly analyze, very briefly analyze his prophecy And I want to make three applications. That's a lot to do in 24 minutes. If you go to the Bible table of contents, you won't find this prophet's name. He's not well known. He's not a major prophet. He's not a minor prophet. In fact, there's only one story about this prophet in the whole Bible. That story is told twice. It's told in 2 Chronicles chapter 18, but it's also told in 1 Kings chapter 22. And that's where I'd like for us to meet today, 1 Kings 22, meet me in the Bible. The prophet's name is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. In Hebrew, Micaiah ben Imlah. Micaiah lived during a dark season in Israel's history. The kingdom had divided, and Micaiah lived in the northern kingdom called Israel during the reign of Ahab. Recognize that name? R.G. Lee, well known in the pulpit from a past generation, vividly described Ahab as the vile human toad that squatted on the throne of Israel. (laughs) And his wife Jezebel as the beautiful and malicious serpent coiled next to her husband. (laughs) Ahab was both weak and wicked at the same time. A dangerous combination. In the previous chapter, in 1 Kings 21... Verses 25 and 26 tell us that there was none like Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord. He did very abominably. Ahab was the worst of the worst. When the prophet Micaiah appeared on the pages of history, there was a wicked man sitting on the throne of Israel. And when we come to 1 Kings 22, we learn in verse 1 that it has been three years since there has been a war. Ahab did not like peace. Ahab understood what all wicked dictators know. War has a way of keeping people loyal to the king. So Ahab calls for a summit 
with Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, in verse 2. He proposes an alliance for the purpose of taking Ramoth and Gilead from the Syrians, in verse 3. And Jehoshaphat pledges to support the effort in verse 4, but he has a second thought, and in verse 5, he makes one request. Inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. Could we first get a word from the Lord? And so Ahab, verse 6, assembles 400 prophets, and he poses the question, shall I go against Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And with one voice, all 400 prophets unanimously say, go up, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. Well, apparently something smelled a little fishy to Jehoshaphat. And so he says in verse 7, is there not a prophet of the Lord besides that we may inquire of him? And Ahab says in verse 8, yet, there is yet one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. For he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Okay, yes, there is one more prophet, Micaiah, but I've canceled him. I don't invite him to state functions. He never has anything good to say about me. Now, you, you would think that Ahab might say, well, look, man, we just got a thumbs up from 400 prophets. Why do we need to hear from 401? But apparently, to get Jehoshaphat's help, Ahab was willing to concede on this point. And so he sends for Micaiah. And the next few verses, I think, are like a split screen. There are three things that are happening simultaneously. An officer goes to get Micaiah in verse 9. And the kings array themselves in their royal robes and set up thrones to sit in verse 10. And the 400 prophets have a pep rally. And one of them gets a set of iron horns and says, we're going to gore the Syrians to death. And all the other prophets cheer and concur. So the messenger finds Micaiah and offers him some advice. Look at it in verse 13. The messenger that had gone to call Micaiah spoke unto him, saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets declare good unto the king with one mouth. Let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them, and speak that which is good. Now listen, he says, the prophets have already declared to the kings with one voice that Ahab should attack Ramoth, and you should agree with them and give the king a good answer. Hey man, don't stir up a sting. 
And instantly we discover the pressure that is being exerted on Micaiah. There's direct solicitation from the king's messenger. You need to agree with the other prophets. But there's also other kinds of pressure in this passage. There's the the pressure of an intimidation that is implied by the pomp and the pageantry and the power, the royal robes, the elevated thrones. To stand before the king, to appear in royal court, to see the kings in their royal robes sitting on elevated thrones. I'm sure that Micaiah had to have felt the pressure. The setting itself was intended to pressure the prophet. Before Chuck Colson was converted, he worked in the Nixon White House. Colson on, on one occasion commented that being, just being in the White House, the power center of the world, made it tough for anyone to tell the president he was wrong. Presidents and kings use that reality to their advantage. And so Micaiah has been directly solicited to say something. He is now feeling the pressure of intimidation. And brothers and sisters, don't we also face a certain kind of cultural pressure in the way we respond to the issues of our day? The culture of our day believes that biblical Christianity is, well, it consists of of primitive concepts, completely irreconcilable to modern thinking. That was a quote from an article in a Christian magazine called Trivializing the Cross. John Stott observed... And I quote, the gospel contains some features so alien to modern thought that they appear to fall as folly to intellectuals, no matter how hard we try to show that they are true and reasonable. That's really what Paul faced in intellectual, philosophical Athens. And he wrote to the Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified unto the Greeks foolishness. In our day, even words like sin, like the shedding of blood, like judgment, and even the word heaven Sounds silly to many people. Christianity is mocked as a, quote, slaughterhouse religion whose archaic, whose ideas are archaic. And that can make us reluctant, hesitant in the public square to speak. Oh, it's pretty easy to talk about those things in here. This is the home team. 
But it's not very easy to talk about those things out there. And as hard as that is for us, that's what our people, our churches, our church people face at work, on campus, in the public square of culture. Our views say about child discipline or homosexuality or cohabitation or premarital sex or divorce or creation or even the exclusivity of Christ that there is one and only one way to be saved. By faith alone, in Christ alone. Out there in the marketplace of ideas, we feel pressure. How do we withstand those pressures? We're not the home team anymore. All our games are away games. The culture around us doesn't believe what we believe, and they pressure us to go with the flow. Micaiah faced that kind of pressure. But then added to that, there was also peer pressure. In this instance, it was those 400 prophets that had all agreed to tell the king what he wanted to hear. And for Christians, that can be the pressure of the religious establishment. Sadly, even even in the presence of those who claim to follow Christ, there can be the pressure to deny biblical truth. You should Google, as I have, the list of Christian denominations affirming LGBTQ. Here's the quote. Many Christian denominations do not consider homosexuality and gender identity to be sin. This includes entire religious denominations as well as individual churches and congregations. According to the Pew Forum, 52% actually, a majority of those who claim to be Christian do not believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal life. On that day, Micaiah felt pressured to agree with the majority of prophets. And as the story unfolds, he actually faced physical intimidations. In the previous chapter, Ahab and Jezebel had killed a man to acquire a little piece of property. Ahab doesn't like to be told no. Micaiah is already on Ahab's hate list. He doesn't want to be on his hit list. (laughs) And in fact, later in the chapter, Micaiah is slapped in the face by another prophet. And in fact, he is ordered to be put in prison and fed nothing but bread and water. Do you think those things could ever happen to Christians in America? 
The pressure is intensifying. Solicitation from an officer. Pressure from the setting. Peer pressure from the other prophets. Pain, humiliation, imprisonment. And so in verse 15, Micaiah stood before the kings and the prophets. And the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go against Ramoth-Gilead to battle or shall we forbear? And Micaiah, he's asked the same question that the other 400 prophets. Now, his answer is this prophecy, and it's not an easy prophecy to, to really understand. If, if you'd allow me, I'm going to just really summarize it very quickly. There are four parts to his answer. The first is what I'm going to call prophetic sarcasm. Some of you think you finally discovered your spiritual gift. <laughs> Hear me out. You know, it's not easy to see sometimes on a written page of Scripture, but there is sarcasm in the Bible, and the prophets used it. And so Micaiah first answered it with sarcasm. Look at verse 15. Go and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. Micaiah said exactly what all of the other prophets had said. But apparently he said it in such a way with such dripping sarcasm that Ahab knew that Micaiah's words were facetious. You see, Ahab wasn't ready to hear the truth. But, a, but Micaiah's sarcasm made him ready to hear what the prophet had to say. And so he says in verse 16, come on, tell me the truth. What follows then is the second part, which I'm going to call prophetic vision. Verse 17, I saw Israel scattered as sheep with no shepherd." don't have time to develop that. That goes back to Moses and goes forward to Jesus. But really, it's just about a lack of leadership. I see the nation of Israel scattered because they do not have a leader. And then in verses 19 through 23, he gives what I think is really a prophetic parable. And you can summarize that by saying... Micaiah says to Ahab, you are going to be destroyed by listening to lying prophets. And finally, in verse 28, there is uh, his prophetic confidence. Basically, if what I have said doesn't come to pass, then I'm not a prophet. That's the test, isn't it? That's Deuteronomy 18. And Micaiah's prophecy proved true. In spite of the warning from Micaiah, Ahab went to war. He tried to hedge his bets. He disguised himself as a common soldier. Ahab was killed by a random arrow from an enemy archer. Micaiah told Ahab the truth in the face of much pressure. He withstood the pressure. He withstood the direct solicitation, the political 
cultural pressure, the peer pressure, the physical humiliation, the intimidation, the threats. Facing great pressure, Micaiah demonstrated courage. So what does it take to withstand the pressure of our time? It takes courage. And what does courage look like? Here's the application. Number one, Christian courage means being willing to stand alone. Christian courage means being willing to stand alone. Number two, Christian courage is being committed to speaking God's word into every situation. I think the best verse in this whole story is a single verse. It happened early in the story when the messenger tried to solicit him to agree with the other 400 prophets, right then, right at the beginning of the pressure, right at the beginning is when he made a decision. He made a moral decision right there to be courageous. And it's expressed in a single verse in verse 14. Micaiah said, as the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. Amen. In every circumstance, in every situation, regardless of the pressures put on me, I am committed simply to declare God's word. For a Christian, Courage is speaking God's word into every situation, no matter what. If we genuinely believe in the power and the authority of Scripture. So when those moral issues, or when those issues of sexuality and gender, or when those issues of origins, or when those issues of religious inclusivity come at you, you are being courageous when you bring God's word into every situation. The answer is to be ready to give an answer to every man. And the answer that we give should be, thus saith the Lord. We must not speak those words bitterly, or hatefully, Peter says, with meekness, with respect, with fear. Paul says, speaking the truth with love. This is courage. The willingness to stand alone. Being willing, being committed to speaking God's word. And finally, it is also being Compelled by an audience of one. Someone has said that when it comes to public speaking, the difference between a novice and a professional is that when you ask a novice to speak, he or she will say, what should I speak about? 
But when you ask a professional to speak, he or she will say, who is my audience? And on that day, imagine those 400 prophets thinking about who their audience was. But unlike those 400 prophets, Micaiah understood that in reality, though there were two kings and 400 prophets and perhaps many other people, he really had an audience of one. And it wasn't Jehoshaphat and it wasn't Ahab. And it wasn't any one of those prophets. Ultimately, his audience is the Lord. This is what courage looks like. Willing to stand alone. Committed to speaking God's word. Compelled by an audience of one who will be the final judge of everything we say or do. This is what it will take to stand up to the pressure of our time. So in these changing times, as we live in a culture that is increasingly hostile to us, may God give us all individually and as churches, courage. Amen. Knowing the time, now is the time yes. for courage.